Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss Hello and welcome to That Got Me Thinking. I'm Ellie Newman and this week I've been thinking about balance and harmony. I've been thinking about systems and what it means for them to be in balance. How separate but equal rarely is. And for a system to be in harmony, its parts must be integrated. That the power of a whole resides in its empowered parts. That the push and pull creates balance and strength in all systems and relationships. That two equal but separate parts are not a strong system. It's a precarious balancing act, with a slight shift in weight throwing it off kilter, and a major shift in weight crashing the tentative balance to the floor. I've been thinking about the U.S. government, the system of checks and balances, and the separation of powers. My guest today is University of Pennsylvania Law School Assistant Professor Jean Galbraith. She's a scholar of U.S. foreign relations law and public international law. Her work focuses on the allocation of legal authority among United States governmental actors. She's an international and constitutional law expert. In law school at Bolt Hall, UC Berkeley, she received the Order of the Quaff, won American Jurisprudence Awards in six classes, was the editor-in-chief of the California Law Review and articles editor of the Berkeley Journal of International Law. She received her undergraduate degree with top honors from Harvard University with a degree in social studies and the comparative study of religion. She clerked for Judge David Tattle on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and then clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens on the Supreme Court of the United States. From there, she went on to hold legal scholar posts in top universities in the United States and abroad. I now have to stop listing all her achievements in the field because my self-confidence is plummeting because I didn't even get into Berkeley Law School, which had been my top choice. (laughs) But incredibly impressive. Um, so we are we are talking to an expert here. So welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I want to start with what drew you to the law, and especially what drew you into the area of international and constitutional law. So I guess after college, I was one of those people who didn't really have a clear sense of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, But some of the things that I cared about were, first of all, just thinking about how governments and institutions work and function, and also more pragmatically about keeping an options open to do a lot of things going forward. And law school struck me as a way to explore both of those interests. It was a space where I could study things that interested me, but also something where as a career matter, you can move on and do a lot of different things with a law degree. So that's what drew me to law school originally. And I, as I said, I went to Berkeley, which was fantastic. Did you, did you like law school? Was the experience of law school itself enjoyable? Oh, yes, for me, definitely. And did you have a clear sense as you moved through the process as to what you might do afterwards, as to where you wanted to take the education? No, at the end of it, I knew I wanted to go and work as a law clerk for a federal judge because I thought that would be a really fascinating way of studying how law is interpreted in practice. And then after that, I really still didn't have much of an idea. And as you can tell from from my resume, including some of the, the other parts you haven't mentioned, I've done a lot of different things in the last uh, 12 years since law school. I told you my confidence got, got too low. I had to stop. And so then you thought, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure what I'll do. So I'll go, I'll go clerk for the Supreme Court next. I think a pretty good, good choice. There. I got lucky. And I clerked for an incredible justice there. Okay, so I've got this song in my head from my son's elementary school, Waldorf School. Uh, three branches, three branches. And I was kind of teasing him because I was like, okay, the song goes on about how there are three branches. Um, do you know what they are? And so I started thinking about and wondering if many people in our country knew, number one, there were three ban- branches of our government, and then second, what they are and what their roles are. So I want you to give us a quick U.S. Government 101 Um, on what the three branches are in in our government, make, execute, and interpret, and who's responsible for what? Well, first, let me say, I think my education is a little deficient because I don't know this song, and I'm going to have to look (laughs) it up uh, going forward. But at least my education can speak to the three branches of government because that's a core thing that one studies in law school and that I, as a legal scholar, study throughout. Um, So the three branches that we think about in our government are uh, the legislative branch, Congress, 
the presidency, and the judiciary. Uh, and each of those is identified in our Constitution. Congress is talked about in Article One of the Constitution, the president in Article Two, and the judiciary in Article Three. And the framers had a vision that Congress would go ahead and make the laws, the president would be the chief executive officer who would execute the laws and also serve as the interface between the United States and foreign nations, and it would be the role of the judiciary to uh, interpret the laws, and shortly after the founding of the Constitution, the judiciary took on the role as well of interpreting not just the laws that Congress made, but also the Constitution of the United States. Now, I will say that legal scholars often speak of a fourth branch as well, a branch that's not named in the Constitution and that really developed starting in the 19th century through practice. And the fourth branch that they'll talk about is the administrative state, a world in which we have administrative agencies that are created by Congress, but nonetheless have some fidelity to the president, and that serve regulatory roles where they're doing all three of these roles in terms of making, executing, and interpreting uh, law subject to directions from Congress and oversight from the president. And so and what, what would be a couple examples of those? Uh, the Federal Reserve, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Securities and Exchange Corporation. Uh, and you can think of even cabinet offices is having a certain flair of being administrative agencies as well, the Department of the Treasury, the State Department, the Department of Justice. So the founders didn't just think, okay, we've got this pie, let's cut it up into three or four pieces so everyone has a piece. They thought long and hard about this, and there was a lot of conversation around it as to why this was important. Can we talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, they he spent their summer in, in Philadelphia, which is where I am now, having a you know month long month long closed door debate about how exactly they want to structure things. And of course, a core principle was the idea that that came out of European philosophers, but we really associate strongly with James Madison of the idea of checks and balances. The idea that if you divide up power among different actors in the government, then no one actor is going to be able to gather too much power through self-aggrandizement. They'll all keep an eye on each other in ways that serve their own institutional interest, and by doing so, serve the greater public good of concern about aggregation of power. And so let's talk a little bit before we really dive deeply into the difference between a democracy and a republic, and whether or not we really are a true democracy, and if it would be a good thing to be one or not. So I guess for me, these are both terms whose meaning has doesn't is not too specific anymore. Maybe once they had very specific meanings, and now they have they sort of stand as generalized categories, which have a considerable degree of overlap to them. So if you think of democracy as the idea of government by the people, well, we don't have a direct democracy in the sort that the ancient Greeks did among those citizens who they treated as, as full equal participants, where everybody is getting together and voting on everything. We have a system whereby uh, we elect representative officials, and then they are supposed to carry out various roles. And some of the institutions we have, like the Supreme Court, rely on appointed officials as well. The term republic uh, I think it's even harder to pin down what it really means today than democracy. You can think of it as a contrast to a monarchy, uh, which would encompass democracy but might encompass other forms of governments as well. Or you can take it in, a, in more narrow meanings that different political scientists do, do too. So let's talk a little bit more about why the separate powers and the checks and balances system um, came out as sort of the winner in deciding how to establish a government, as opposed to maybe the parliamentary system where the legislative and executive branches are joined? Like, what, what was it that was like, this is why this matters? So at the experience of the Continental Congress, had been to try what was largely a one-branch system in the years during the Declaration of Independence and leading up to the Constitutional Convention, whereby there was a Congress and its role was to go ahead and try to do everything that the federal government was doing. And the framers became aware that this was not working very well for a variety of reasons. And one was that the Congress was 
ineffective in getting things done uh, it, because it was a body that was had a lot of members and you needed nine. It was you know, the states that voted in the Continental Congress. You needed basically nine of those states to agree to anything, and that was always difficult. They felt it wasn't particularly effective. And so the idea of having a, a separate actor, the presidency, who would have some power was tied to that as well, in addition to giving stronger powers to the Congress vis-a-vis the states and setting up a federal judiciary whose role it would be to keep the U.S. states from violating federal law. Okay, So, so that re- was part of it. But they also did not want the monarchical system of Great Britain, of course, which was what we had just fought a war of independence to get away from. Okay. And I realize before we go further, I want to really clarify, because I think some, some, maybe a lot of people don't really know who's responsible for what. So of the three branches, what is the court's main role, the, the branches, each of their main roles in the government? So I think the vision of the framers was a pretty clean one of Congress goes ahead and passes laws. The president's job is to make sure that the laws are being followed, and the job of the courts is to interpret the laws. But candidly, as a legal scholar, I find it very hard to take any one of those three categories and look at the world today and say that's precisely what's going on. So in the national security context, where I spend a lot of my time as a scholar, for example, you see that the president really plays a lot of roles that look like things that you might once have construed as making law. Major decisions are done by the president that Congress can perhaps stop, but typically doesn't authorize ex ante. Uh, And if you think about the judiciary, we had the idea in the 18th century that the law is out there and it just needs to be interpreted. And today the approach is sort of thinking about what law is, is draws more on the idea that law is often sufficiently indeterminate that what a court does looks more like making law sometimes than interpreting law. And then if we turn to Congress, if we just thought about Congress's role in making law, we would overlook the ways in which Congress has other kinds of powers that relate to the other two branches, like the power to conduct investigations, for example, and things like that. Uh, so that's a question that is I, one that I can't give an answer to that's perfect and confined because the answer is really messy and complex. And I think we'll spend the majority of this show talking about that messiness and complexity. I was thinking when you said that one of the most depressing classes I had in law school, I think, was learning how laws were made, because that also is not a clear and efficient and effective process. And by the end of the course, you're just like, oh, my God, that's frightening. People are asleep at four in the morning, you know, there's a couple of people awake and they're sort of after hours and hours of meetings, we write some things in and then, you know, people sign it days later at the, at the end of the process. And you're just like, okay, does anyone know what's in there? Yes. And has anybody read it? And, yeah. Has anyone? Not, not the whole thing. No question. I think we all came to right. that conclusion. Mm-hmm. So do you think in past history that there really were these more distinct three branches or four branches of government and that it worked as the framers had envisioned? Was there a period when it was seemingly working that way? I think that very immediately after the Constitution was created, once we got they got into the practical aspects of governance, it became clear that the Constitution operated, as Chief Justice Marshall wrote in one opinion, in the form of great outlines and that there was a lot to be worked out in practice. And that in turn meant that the decision-making about who had the power to do what was going to get messy very quickly. Uh, So I don't think that it's the sort of purest, that if we take the kind of platonic ideal, pure vision of power being packaged so it was all entirely in separate boxes, I don't think that ever had a chance of working. But it's certainly true that the allocations of relative powers have changed over time in our constitutional history. So things, for example, that the president might do now uh, and consider that well within uh, his or her presidential power would be things that George Washington would never have thought he had the authority to do. So the war context is an example of that, for example. So let's talk about executive orders and, and how that's changed and some of the things that 
um, President Trump, maybe some of his most controversial policies from the campaign, um, if he has the legal right as far as the constitutional right to implement them, and what are his paths to doing so? So maybe start with how the executive orders work. Yeah, so the president has the power to issue executive authority orders that come really out of two different sources of power. One source of power is the Constitution, and one source of power would be power that Congress has given to the president in laws that Congress has passed. So let me take each of those in turn. So in terms of the power that the president has under the Constitution that he can use in, with executive orders, you can think about two types of constitutional powers. One would be substantive powers that the Constitution gives the president, like he's the commander-in-chief, for example. And the other would be a procedural power of being the person who's in control of the executive branch. And that's the idea that the president should have, be able to have some control over what the different officials in the executive branch do. And so we see with some of these executive orders that have come out with relation to regulatory structure and reform, for example, what he's doing is ordering various administrative agency heads to take certain steps. Uh, and his power to do that is a constitutional power of control over the executive branch. Um, but it may be subject to some limits in terms of what Congress has said those executive branch agency heads can do. And I'll come back more to that more specifically maybe later on. The other kind of power are the powers that Congress has delegated to the president in statutes. And Congress in statutes often delegates power not to the president, but rather to the heads of administrative agencies, but some powers it delegates specifically to the president. And that's especially true in the national security context. So in the immigration context, for example, the president is the actor who Congress has delegated certain powers to to decide who does or does not come into the, it come into the country. So let's take a specific example. Let's say with the gender identity rights, where the Supreme Court has established them, and then it looks like now the president is acting in a way that contradicts those rights that were established. So when there's a, a conflict there between the executive order and maybe what has been established by either Congress or the Supreme Court, what's next? Like what happens when those parameters get crossed? Yeah, so in my answer to you on the prior question, I, was, I talked about the authorizations, you know, where the president gets the sources of power for, from, and what you're now speaking to is a separate and equally important thing, which is the constraints that exist on that, on that power. And one constraint is, of course, that the president can't do something he doesn't have the power to do in the first place. But another set of constraints is that the president can't do something that violates constitutional rights or, in certain cases, constitutional rights that have been given to not just individuals, but also to the state. So to the extent that the president issues an order that is uh, in violation of a constitutional right as established by the Supreme Court, uh, then you have basically several pathways to having that be, be challenged. One way would be for people who are directly affected by that to bring court cases saying, hey, this is in violation of our constitutional rights. We're directly affected, so we have a right to bring a court case. Please strike this down, um, courts. And another way might be institutionally if administrative agencies feel that they uh, cannot carry the order out as a matter of constitutional uh, rights and obligations. And so maybe the other situation is more murky or more dangerous when he's actually, or she, hopefully in the future, is actually doing something that isn't against the Constitution, but it's not in their area where they're supposed to be dictating. Well, so I think the um, immigration ban, or you can call it the executive order protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States, or you can call it the Muslim ban. I mean, it's what it's called, of course, is, relates to how, how people think of it, is a, is a good example of that. So here we have an area where, frankly, the law is pretty murky. And part of why the law, in terms of what the president can do, is murky is because when presidents have been using the kinds of power in the past to, to control issues related to immigration, 
they've done so in ways that have paid their fidelity to process values about relying on opinions from experts, um, getting input, making decisions that are tied to tied to the facts in some way. And when you have a situation where what President Trump did more or less was to issue an executive order that hadn't gone through uh, the inter- interagency process that orders typically go through as a matter of process that hadn't been substantiated by the facts on the ground in research, uh, and you're acting in an unsettled ground, and that's exactly the kind of moment where you may see court challenges coming up, as we did, and you may see courts, they're on unsettled down, they can grow various, go various ways, and they have to make decisions about the extent to which these kinds of choices are lawful or not. He's already got a couple lawsuits against him, yeah. more than a couple. I thought, I wonder if that was a record this, this yeah, early it's on. Been, I mean, you know, we're, I'm used as a, a constitutional law scholar to thinking about these things unfolding over the course of administration, of an administration. There's kind of an ebb and flow, and I feel like we've had that ebb and flow all in the first month of the Trump administration. So there's a question of what's coming next. You know, it's all been in fast forward, but you have the uh, lawsuit that went on, you know, ra- around the country in relation to the immigration ban. You have a challenge to his order regarding regulation, uh, his order that for every regulation that's passed, you need to identify two that will be eliminated. Uh, and you have a challenge brought by the city of San Francisco to his order when, that relates to sanctuary cities and trying to strip federal funding away from them. Uh, uh, lawsuits are becoming a tool by which Individuals, but actually very notably the states and cities as well, are pushing back against uh, the decisions that have been made in the early stages of the Trump administration. So that's playing out as far as a relationship between the current president and the states and the courts. We get a clear picture of that. Let's talk a little bit about something you mentioned earlier and the relationship between Congress and the executive branch. Uh, I read an article by Mikey Edwards, former civics professor and congressman in February Political Magazine, and he says, to a considerable extent, Republicans and Democrats in Congress have taken to seeing themselves not as a part of a separate and competing branch of government, but as arms of their respective political parties. And that Congress has begun to unilaterally disarm itself, not necessarily intentionally, but by cost-cutting and and not, um, he even says, by not traveling as much. So the information they're getting is something that is being fed to them rather than something that they're they're uh, get, gathering on their own. Is that something that you agree with? Do you feel like Congress has become less of its own competing and, and strong arm of the government? So... I think in some sense, the story here goes all the way back to the founding, right? The framers didn't predict the party system. George Washington starts to see it developing in his presidency and his farewell address. He warns of the dangers of faction. Uh, and then starting very immediately after that, we have a story of a of a two-party system that has continued large over the years with some shifts in terms of what those two parties are. With that said, I think My impression from the research that's gone on in political science, and this is more to me a political science question than a straight law question, is that partisanship has been sharply on the rise in the last 20 years, such that members of Congress whose allegiance was to a particular party, uh, but also to kind of regional blocks and other kind of institutional structures, are much more united now along the lines of parties in in ways that make it very hard for Congress to actually get together and do things uh, unless there's a majority in Congress and the presidency of the same party. And in certain cases, unless they can overcome some of the procedural uh, structures that have been built into Congress, like the filibuster uh, in the Senate, that are designed to make it hard to do something unless you have some degree of bipartisan support. Uh, so with that, what's the what's the relationship between Congress and the president going to be in the Trump administration? Well, of course, right now we have a Republican Congress. We have a Republican president. You have the conditions that historically would be um, most right for 
a consolidated agenda getting done. President Obama was really only able to get major legislation through in his first two years in office when he similarly had a Democratic Congress to back him as a Democratic president. Um, but at the moment, and while you see, I think, most of the Republicans in Congress being unwilling to push back against President Trump when he does something uh, outrageous, there are enough of them who are pushing back, and there are enough that are just plain worried uh, that the honeymoon period right now when the president is supposed to work with Congress and get their agenda through is the time is ticking on that. And it remains to be seen how much we're actually going to see affirmative legislation out of this Congress. He also says in the article, America's founders recognized the truth in Hobbes' declaration that governments were needed to prevent abuses of the weak by the powerful, but they recognized that government, too, would need to be prevented from committing its own abuses, hence the need for the sometimes frustrating but nonetheless necessary divisions of authority between the state and federal governments, between the branches of the federal government. What do you see as being the facts of this shift or this exaggeration that we have now where Congress is more like an arm of the executive branch rather than a competing branch? So uh, in my field, they, people often think about two twin kinds of dangers that are of concern. One is of presidential overreaching. The president is going to end up with so much power that they, uh, he or she will be largely unchecked and make decisions that our framers would have thought it dangerous to entrust to a single person on the one hand. And I'm not then sure if that's a hand, fear or if that's something we've already seen that happen. reality? Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm like, well, oh, that's, this, hmm. I think those boxes yeah, have all so, been checked. So on the other hand, I think there's an equal concern about uh congressional gridlock. If you have a Congress that's unable to do something and yet you need things to be done, uh, is it better or worse for the president to be able to step into the void and go ahead and do things and carry them out? Uh, now, your first best solution might be let's have a robust Congress that's really active and so forth, and then we can have a less robust president. But if you don't have that robust Congress, uh, then the question is, what's your, what's your second best solution? And this is actually one of the reasons why separation of powers is such a fun field to study as a scholar, because things that one might like under an administration that favors the policy preferences that you as an individual have, you might like them up for that presidency, but then you don't like them for the next presidency. But as a, as a legal scholar, you have to be, be faithful and identify principles that you think can run through uh, all administrations. And nothing's going to get it structure the law so that it's perfectly conforms to one's policy preferences. It shouldn't. And so do you kind of see it as being on this three-point scale? And so when maybe Congress tips to be more in line with the executive branch, that the courts then kind of get peaked up um, their involvement and their power in balancing out the system? I don't think I, one can generalize that strongly. So, or is that the hope the most, of what will happen? <laughs> well, you might say that that should actually not be the hope, because when so uh, let me uh, take this back to perhaps the most famous constitutional law case on this: how power is separated between Congress and the president, and that's a case called Youngstown versus Sawyer. It was decided in the 1950s by the Supreme Court uh, during the Korean War. And so what had happened is President Truman had taken the United States into war in Korea without an explicit congressional authorization and then turned around and said, we need, although there was a strike that went on in the steel mills, and President Truman said, we need this steel, it's essential for our war efforts in Korea. So what I'm going to do is to issue an executive order, which he did, uh, taking control of the steel factories from their owners. Uh, and the owners promptly brought suit to say this is an unconstitutional, unconstitutional president doesn't have the power to seize our steel mills in order to further a war that Congress has never declared. And the Supreme Court agreed with the steel mill owners. They said that the president didn't have the power, that the executive, they struck down the executive order. And in that 
case, there were they did it very quickly over the course of a month or so. So there were a lot of different opinions from the justices. And one of them, Justice Jackson set out a vision about how to think of the president's power. And he said, basically, when Congress has explicitly authorized the president to do something, that's when we courts should be most hesitant to strike down what's going on because it has the support of both of the other branches. By contrast, when the president seems to be doing something that Congress doesn't want him to do, then we should be most willing to strike down the presidential action because his power there is at the lowest ebb. And then he said, oh, then there's this gray zone in the middle where Congress hasn't explicitly or implicitly authorized, but it hasn't explicitly or implicitly said no either. And then we just have to figure out whether or not the president has the power. So I think that where you see the president and Congress acting together, courts are going to be most reluctant to strike something down. But you often today see just the president acting on his own or possibly in contravention of the congressional intent. So that makes a lot of sense about the importance of the three branches maintaining their um, strength and their abilities to function. And in the areas of establishing war and then also in international relations, do you feel like there has been a shift that Congress has somehow lost some of their power and the executive branch has adopted it in those areas? So I think in the foreign affairs and national security context is the area where, at least since the days of Teddy Roosevelt, you've seen a particularly strong and over time increasingly strong presidency. And uh, as you say, that comes in, in tandem with somewhat diminished powers of Congress. And where that's probably most striking is, well, to two areas, maybe the war powers and also the power to make international agreements with other countries. In both of those, we compare what the president can do as a matter of constitutional practice today with what the president could do as a matter of constitutional practice 200 years ago, you see a vast expansion of the powers of the presidency. And is that a can do or should do or <laughs> to oh, say, so oh, those are know, the hard, we're, that's a we're, we're really, hard no, I, don't, I don't like this treaty. We're done with that. Tear it up. Well, so that's, uh, you know, so far, if we think of what President Trump has done in the international agreement space, and he's only been there for uh, you know, for for a few weeks now, the only thing he's done has been something that is entirely, as far as I'm concerned, within his power to do, which is to say, I'm not going to move forward with the TPP. Uh, so President Obama had negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement. Uh, he had gone ahead and signed it. And the next step in the process would have been to take it to Congress and get Congress to, by a, a simple majority vote, approve it and implement it. And President Trump said... I am not going to be moving forward with seeking congressional approval on this, and I am, in fact, going to signal to the international community that the United States no longer wants to participate. Uh, Now one can debate as a matter of policy whether that's right or not, but as a matter of legal authority, I don't see any doubt that he has the power to do that. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with professor and legal scholar Jean Galbraith. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're talking about the separation of powers and the system of checks and balances. So stick with us. All right, we're back. We are talking about the Constitution and the presidency and the court system. And we're going to focus a little bit now on the relationship between the executive branch and the Supreme Court. Because I was thinking about something you said earlier, that the system, the two-party system, it's become so divisive and so political. And that's affected Congress's role in the relationship with Congress. Has the same thing happened to some extent with the court system? Um, I'm thinking thinking about on on a couple levels. One, back to Bush v. Gore in 2000, um, when the Supreme Court halted the Florida vote count and overruled the Florida Supreme Court, validated the Florida Secretary of State's certification of where the votes um, counting stood. Was that pure interpretation? Or was there some political um, influence operating there under those decisions? So the Supreme Court we have depends on the people who are on it. Uh, And that in turn depends largely on the process by which they are 
put onto it to the extent that the president and the Senate uh, seek a Supreme Court that has very strong legal skills, which they do, you're going to get people with very strong legal skills. And that that has been true historically and remains the case. To the extent that the president and the Senate uh, seek people who have interpretive positions that line up with those taken by political parties, you're probably also going to see that too. And we are, well, there's been a shift in this as well. I mean, if you think back, President Eisenhower put a Democrat uh, on the Supreme Court. I think it would be very unlikely today for a president of either party to pick a Supreme Court candidate who was of the opposite party. Now, once you get them on the court, to what extent are the Supreme Court justices making decisions based on their fidelity to legal principles versus to other kinds of considerations? I think that that is a question that's very hard to answer. Political scientists try to do that. My own preference is a, as a lawyer is to presume good faith on the part of all the Supreme Court justices, understanding that the methodologies that they bring to their interpretive positions are ones that are going to somewhat predictably produce different outcomes. So let's talk a little bit about putting them on the court. Um, Was it okay for Obama's pleas to be ignored and have a vote on his nominee legally? Was that Uh, fine? So the question for me is, did senators violate their obligations under the Constitution uh, and their oath of office to act in good faith in carrying out their responsibility? And I think that's a very hard question, frankly. Uh, If the answer is yes, and my instinct is that because the Garland nomination was a it was really a new move to say we're not going to consider this candidate on the merits at all uh, simply because we don't like the president who's appointed him, that that was a bold enough break uh, that I think it comes close and maybe crosses the border of, of violating a constitutional responsibility. It's not a constitutional responsibility that the courts could enforce. Uh, it's one that is lies with the senators to enforce or not enforce among themselves. And now that it's there, we have a precedent going forward that later senators can point to and rely upon in justifying themselves acting in similar ways in a situation that was not true before. So then going forward, uh, does it maybe not matter as much who the president is when a seat is vacated rather than who the Congress is at that point? Well, I, I think both because the president nominates. Right. So do you have to wait? You know, you wait it Uh out if you've got got a mismatch? Yeah, I I think that that may very well become the norm. We don't know, right? You might move back to kind of compromise uh, candidates. But functionally, I think what it may mean is that the only time you're going to get a nomination through is when the Senate and the president are of the same political party. And so if you uh, which can, in turn has interesting implications. Yeah, for, and if you can say that it's that violates the intent of the Constitution, but then there's no way to resolve that. I mean, who who would be sued and by whom? You, no one would be sued by anyone. I mean, I think that would be a matter of the uh, one of those obligations where practice changes what the constitutional norm is. And even if the first instance of practice is something we might deem unconstitutional, the more examples we have of it going forward that there are, the less one can appropriately say this is an unconstitutional act. Uh, Now, whether or not it's constitutional or unconstitutional is a separate question of whether it's a good idea and what it's going to mean for the composition of the Supreme Court. And, and on that, on, on if it's a good idea, when we are getting around to having a hearing on, on the nominee, what kinds of questions should we be asking? Um, should we be asking how they would vote on an issue? Because that seems to be what's come up recently. So the uh, historically, since J- uh, Judge Bork uh, failed to get through the Senate in the Reagan era, uh, he, when he was questioned by the Senate about how he would rule on various things and what his constitutional views were, he was extremely forthright. Uh, and the senators didn't like his answers, and they uh, did not 
go forward with his nomination. They didn't advise and consent to his nomination. After that, candidates have been uh, more circumspect in answering these kinds of questions. And I myself think you know, that you don't really want candidates to tell you, frankly and clearly, how they're going to rule on every case. I don't think that the, you, that the role of a judge is to be, you know, impartial and to consider the cases that come before them. And to yeah, that definitely seems like you've now veered <laughs> right. into the political <laughs> realm as to what's your political persuasion rather yeah. than what's your approach mm-hmm. to interpreting law, which is that branch's responsibility. But I think you can you can get a lot out of the candidates about their philosophies at a high level, uh, their degree of candor, their degree of sort of knowledge of the law and so forth. That's good. So one of my favorite colloquies from the um, John Roberts nomination was between Senator Lindsey Graham and John Roberts. Uh, John Roberts had answered every question very articulately, very well. Uh, nobody had stumped him. I mean, he was a great appellate advocate and he was good at answering questions from judges, which can be a lot harder than questions from, from senators. And Lindsey Graham asked him, uh, do you think Justice Scalia is a conservative? And Roberts paused and he said, well, yes, I do. And then the next question is, are you a conservative like Justice Scalia is a conservative? The trap was set. (laughs) Well, I don't know if it was a trap, right? Because Graham is a supporter, but it was a good way of trying to get at it. Uh, And he said, no, he wasn't a conservative quite like Justice Scalia and went on to say a little bit more about that. So that was a way of getting at some of those question, issues and were, without were you, asking about a specific case. Were you surprised when uh, you heard about or read the tweet from President Trump uh, criticizing federal judge James Robar? You know, it was brought up as, you know, oh my gosh, you know, the president is calling him a so-called judge. This is horrendous. But I'm wondering if we look through history, if it actually, it may be spread more quickly and more people knew about it. But I'm wondering if that's something that actually is not novel. Or did he cross the line? I think think it was inappropriate. I don't think it's inappropriate for a judge to criticize a decision of the executive branch for members of Congress to criticize the president for the president to criticize members of Congress or for the president to criticize the decisions of judges. Uh, If he had said, you know, this is a, a bad decision on the merits and I disagree with it, that would be entirely fine. Uh, What was concerning about that tweet was that it wasn't about the substance of the decision. It wasn't, challenging the substance of the decision. Rather, it was challenging the good faith and legitimacy of the decision maker by using the word so-called. And personalizing things in that way is something that's certainly not novel, but it's something that I think should be done with care and saved to situations of real overstepping. And in this case, what you had was a judge who was confronted with an unsettled area of law and ruled in a way on it that within the kind of scope of how judges can rule or not was perfectly permissible. And so for that reason, I think it's inappropriate to have been that dramatic about it. Uh, Drama, of course, is is the hallmark of how Trump communicates and relates. But I think it's such an important point you make, because I think in some regard, it may be the undoing of the whole system as to where we are now, as far as the parts that have been undone, because the, the lack of respect and and the rudeness when you disagree with another's position um, and then making it personal, it seems to have been what's eaten away at not only the relationships among the branches, but within as well. If you look at what's happened in Congress, there there's no more discourse. You can't just agree to disagree or respectfully disagree. It's all become personal, and the position you take is also personal, and the attacks have become personal, much more personal. Not that everyone was nice to each other before, but there was some level of sort of decorum and respect that seemed important, and for the president as well. I was struck by how often people just called President Obama, Obama, rather than President Obama. And I thought, well, that's a shift as well. And it seems like something small, but I think it's indicative of something else. 
Well, I think I just called President Trump Trump, so perhaps I'm guilty of that. that I don't one, know. I've I had know. to make myself Obama call for... him President Trump. Uh-huh. I've had to be very conscious uh-huh. about this interview. I've used Obama. I've used President Obama. But I think that's become the norm. Uh, for those, but I think the, the broader point I absolutely agree with, which is that our system of government isn't just held up by hard laws. It's also held up by a system of softer norms. And these norms are ones that are not formally legally binding ones, but they're important to making a government function and function well. And civility has historically been one of those norms, certainly not always honored, but typically at least paid lip service to as an important thing. And what we're seeing is that that lip service and the degree of commitment that comes with saying you value something is is going away. And I don't know what the end game is of that, you know, whether we bounce back dramatically and uh, get a president after President Trump, who is his polar opposite, the way that President Trump and President Obama are to some degrees polar opposite, or whether we continue to uh, lose this civility in ways that I think will be deeply damaging to our government going forward. So let's talk about how, and not only our government, but our, our government's relationships to the rest of the, the world. Let, let's talk about how the states and their power fit into this mix um, of the branches and where the states get their power and maybe a little bit about the Tenth Amendment and federal overreaching. So part of the uh, core principle of the framers' vision was that there was a national government and then there were also the robust state governments out there. And they had a vision that the national government was going to have certain limited powers and the states were going to have other kinds of powers. And over time, and I, uh, through a process of constitutional evolution and uh, sort of culminating in the New Deal to some degree and in the civil rights era, the federal government has taken on more and more powers that were once exercised exclusively by the states, but the states continue to exercise these too. So in terms of, say, crimes, we have things that are both federal crimes and state crimes. We have a lot of federal money that goes to things that we think about as state functions like education or so forth. Uh, and today there's a sort of interesting question of the way in which the states operate uh, in our system of checks and balances in relation to the federal government. And not just the states, actually, but also the subnational units within the states, you know, their cities, their counties, and so forth. And so one of the things I mentioned that you see is you see this started maybe during the, you know, didn't start in the Obama administration, goes back to the Bush administration maybe before, is states sometimes suing the federal government on very important issues to try to advance their agenda. And the uh, suit brought by the state of Washington with the immigration ban is an example. You also see states making key decisions about whether or not to cooperate with the federal government. So the issue of sanctuary cities right now uh, is an important one. Sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, and the example of California, for example. And that, for, under that, the question is basically, can the federal government require state and local officials to help carry out federal immigration policy? And under Supreme Court precedent in a case that was in which the federal government tried to require state and local governments to help in carrying out the Brady Brady Bill about gun control, the Supreme Court said that principles of federalism in our constitutional structure, uh, and I'm not sure whether they tied it explicitly to the Tenth Amendment or or simply to broader structural principles, those kinds of principles mean that you can't, federal government can't force state and local officials to carry out uh, its laws in these kinds of contexts. And so what the sanctuary cities are saying right now is, federal government, you can't force us to uh, help you identifying and deporting people who are undocumented immigrants. And then, of course, the federal government has other tools at its control to try to get states and cities to do what it wants. So the, what President Trump has said is, we're going to try to cut off funding to sanctuary counties, sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, unless they turn around and help us. And then the sanctuary cities and states and counties say, ah, but 
one of the things the Supreme Court has said as well is that the extent to which you can cut off federal funding when a state or local government isn't doing what you want it to do is limited by some core principles, one of them being that the funding you're trying to cut off should be tied to whatever it is you're trying to get the state or local government to do. And so you see this kind of back and forth that has real political valence in terms of uh, different political ideologies coming into clash, but behind it all is a sort of set of legal principles that are informing the decisions that can be made. Well, and I hadn't thought about it to the extent that you've just laid it out as far as... That was a long answer, well, I know. Well, no, <laughs> I mean the opposite. It was a perfect answer, but I because I saw the picture so clearly now as far as when these norms start to get broken apart and when the respect for the individual branches amongst the branches starts to get pulled apart, it's sort of, you know, it, it in some ways becomes this power grab and who does have the authority and who has the final say. And if the courts stand up and say, well, that's unconstitutional, but someone else says, well, we don't care. We're going to do it anyway. You know, it'll be frightening and interesting to see how that plays out. We've got in the last few minutes, I want to talk about, I think we will thank Let the me, state. Can I just jump in yes, quickly yes. on that point? I don't think we've so far seen any strong evidence that the President Trump is not going to obey the courts might complain about the courts, but I don't think we have strong evidence of a refusal to obey the court. So that's encouraging. So I, I, we take a sigh of relief on if that. that. If that goes, if that gets broken through, then we have then the rule of law is really much more in question than it is presently. Well, that's encouraging. I'm going to sleep well based on that tonight, because I might not have otherwise. So I want to talk a little bit about, in these last few minutes, the Arizona um, Capital Times uh, reports had an article on a recent Arizona Senate vote on, and are you familiar with this? SB uh, one no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure which what you're talking um, about. Where uh, the Arizona State Legislature voted to grant extended power to arrest anyone involved in peaceful protests that may go bad. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is like the perfect first year law question because it brings up all of these issues. Um, you know, raise constitutional flags as far as freedom of association, freedom mm -hmm. of speech, intent to commit a crime, overreaching, punishment not fitting the crime. Um, they are expanding their state racketeering law um, that's aimed at now organized crime to also include rioting. And it redefines what constitutes rioting to include actions that result in damage to the property of others. But within it, kind of the scary parts are guilt by association, um, the government seizing assets of everyone who participated in any way in the protest, kind of back to the um, RICO laws when they started getting applied to the war on drugs. Sounds like that can be subject to any number of uh, very strong constitutional challenges, whether coming out of the First Amendment or out of the Due Process Clause or something like that. Uh, I'm not an expert in these particular areas of constitutional law, but I will say that the Supreme Court has been an incredibly energetic interpreter and sort of enforcer of the First Amendment over the last 20 years. It's certainly a hallmark of Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence. I don't know how long he'll be on the court, um, but he is as the, the current so-called swing vote. Uh, that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. There was one quote that said, wouldn't you, someone that was participating in the vote, and they said, wouldn't you rather stop a riot before it starts? And um, Kavanaugh asked a, a colleague during the debate, and I thought, no, no, I wouldn't. Um, she said, do you really want to wait until people are, are actually injuring each other? And that, to me, was very frightening, because I think so many people could jump on that bandwagon to say, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. You know, let's start... Um, stopping the crime before it starts. And that seems so dangerous to me. And not to mention the chilling effect it has on our right to freedom of speech and freedom of association. Well, it, may, it puts me in mind of the, the movie Minority Report, uh, which was sort of premised on the idea of being able to identify criminal actors before they commit their actions and then explore it in very interesting ways, the kind of moral questions associated with that. I certainly think there are things that states and cities and the federal government can do to try to 
ward off rioting that are appropriate and legal. They can uh, increase police presence at um, marches and protests, and uh, they can try to set boundaries in terms of you know, t- what is appropriate time, place, and manner for various activities to be carried out. Um, but those are the kinds of, those things have to be done in the good sense, appropriate, um, and lawful manners, which hopefully they will be. What the law that you're describing, I am not familiar with. And so, but based on your description of it, it certainly sounds like it is overreaching and ways so- that the courts are going to respond to. So on that, that that same thread, for the last couple of minutes, and we talked a little bit about when the executive branch overreaches and, and what happens. What about when Congress goes beyond the powers um, or may seem to go beyond the powers that were enumerated for Congress and uses the necessary and proper clause? So, you had written on that as far as implementing U.S. treaties. Yeah, so effects. we had uh, the... Original framing vision was one of which Congress had enumerated powers in terms of what it could do, uh, independent of the protections that come with the constitutional rights protections and the Bill of Rights and and the 14th Amendment and so forth. Uh, Over time, Congress has gained more and more power with the blessing of the court, particularly in the New Deal and the civil rights era, in terms of uh, what it can do affirmatively in using its powers. Uh, and there was a slight retrenchment of this in the Rehnquist era, and we can see part of the um, Supreme Court's first major decision on the Affordable Care Act is another example of that. But broadly speaking, Congress has a great deal of power to do, uh, to use the commerce power to do what it wants to do, uh, subject as long as it doesn't trample on individual rights. Now, in the context of international agreements, which I study in particular, even before the expansion of congressional power that I just described, there was a long-standing understand, uh, practice in the, in the political branches and understanding by the Supreme Court that the treaty power is not subject to the limits on the enumerated powers of Congress. Uh, and structurally, you can see that because the treaty power, the president's power to make treaties is set in Article II of the Constitution, not in Article I, which has the limited powers of Congress in it and all the way back to the Treaty of Peace with Great Britain, which the Constitution expressly recognized as continuing uh, in in a supremacy clause. You see decisions about things like private property and so forth in the treaty that you wouldn't have seen Congress making laws about private property. That would have been viewed as a state's issue back then. So the treaty power has historically been one where one can go beyond the enumerated powers of Congress. And that's an area where Uh, There continues to be some constitutional debate about whether that's the right interpretation, but since 1920, at least, it's certainly been the law. Well, I think I'm feeling pretty confident and good about our country and the three branches of government. And I I think I wasn't so much before we started this conversation. I think I was worried that, that there was imbalance and overreaching and that this thing might just fall apart. Oh, well, I'm worried. Uh, But I see a robust set of checks to presidential overreaching that are out there. One is Congress. One is the courts. One is the administrative agencies uh, and their fidelity to to Congress and to principles of of process. Uh, One is in the international community and international law and the international institutions, which we didn't talk about so much. And my own view is that those checks combined – don't stop a president from being able to do things that one will view as, as very bad and unfortunate, but cabin the degree of risk uh, in a way that I think leaves me more hopeful as someone who's concerned about President Trump, but leaves me more hopeful than some. That said, I think we are at a point where the President Trump is going to test that very energetically, and I don't feel entirely confident in my uh, belief in these checks either. And so what would be the area that you think that we need to be most focused on and aware of? Which is the area that you think is most vulnerable, that you think that could do the most damage? um, War. War. Yeah. In the the president's ability to declare it? Mm -hmm. The president's 
and as a matter of constitutional practice, the president has a, a, a gathered fairly strong powers to initiate the use of force. Uh, and if the president does this uh, in ways that are, you know, deeply damaging as a matter of policy, that can have implications for us, for the world, and so forth, that would be absolutely terrible. And, and we might have to do a whole show on that, because I know the under the 1973 Wars Power Act, that there was talk about that once we are involved in the war, it's very hard for Congress to pull us back out. And Congress had meant to be actually be giving themselves more power in protection in, in um, the area of establishing war, and it kind of backfired. Yeah, that was one of the laws passed sort of in the immediately post-Watergate era. It was passed over President Nixon's veto, which takes a high supermajority. And as you say, it was designed to sort of move the power of control over the decisions to use force back from the president, who had kind of accrued this power, especially since the, the starting with the Korean War, back over to Congress. But it hasn't really had that effect. I, I could go on for another hour about that one. Well, I'm going to invite you back, Professor Galbraith. It was absolutely wonderful to have you on this show, and thank you for joining me on that. Got me thinking, joining us. Um, but I hope you will come back, and we can do a show in, focused on the area of your expertise or your other expertise, um, foreign relations law and treaty protocol. Thank you so much. Well, I hope that if we have a conversation about war, it won't be because it's uh, extremely timely. Uh, yeah, thank maybe. you so much for having me on yeah. the show. I've enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to imagine bringing you back to talk about that. That would not be good. But thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> 